Uh, and so I'm grateful to be here, and greetings from Grace Baptist. Um, let's pray. We're going to be looking at basically three verses in Matthew 14, verses 28 to 31, where Peter actually walks on water, although VJ read uh, the whole, uh, the whole uh, piece of that from uh, uh, before that, from 22 to 33, where Jesus sends out the, uh, uh, the apostles on a boat. Uh, but I want to look at specifically at Peter. But before we do, let's ask God to help us. Uh, Father, thank you, uh, Lord, for the truths that we just sang, even how, Lord, you, there's healing in your hand, and uh, what so much more can be said about your goodness and your grace and your mercy. Pray now, Father, help us to believe the gospel. Help us to, Lord, not only learn truth, but, Lord, live truth. Uh, Lord, glorify you all the more for it. Lord, help us when it comes to faith, which is a gift from you. Lord, help us to exercise it and grow in it. And Lord, when we doubt, Lord, please grant us grace again. And Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, <clears throat> basically what's happening before the verses that we're looking at today is Jesus feeds the 5,000 men. And that's 5,000 men plus women and children. So we're looking at like 20,000 people. And he feeds them with five loaves of bread and two fish. Uh, and at that point, we read in, the, uh, in John's version of that, that account that the people are determined to come and to take Jesus by force and make him a king. And Jesus will have no part of that because he didn't come to be their kind of king or an earthly king, so he sends the people away. And then he makes or compels, we read, his disciples to get in a boat and he tells them to go over the other side of the Sea of Galilee and that he would meet up with them later on. And he sends them away because he doesn't want them to get caught up in this frenzy of making Jesus a king now. He doesn't want them to get caught up in that and to start thinking, well, you know what, now's a good time for Jesus to come and basically inaugurate the kingdom and to bring the glory back to Israel. And by the way, we ourselves will take positions of prominence in the kingdom because we're his disciples. So he sends them on a boat sometime after dark to go across the sea and he goes up on a mountain to pray. And as disciples are rowing, they encounter great winds, horrific waves, and they are basically stuck in the middle of the sea, basically rowing against the wind. Jesus, of course, sees them struggling, but he waits. And he waits until the fourth hour of the night, or the fourth watch of the night, uh, to go to them, which is somewhere between 3 o'clock in the morning and 6 in the morning. Then he comes to them. He comes to them how? By walking on the very water and going through the winds and the waves that are causing the disciples to struggle. And he walks over those things, comes to them, and as he's coming toward them, we read they are petrified because they think it is a ghost. And we really can't fault them for that because at this point in the history of the world, no one has ever walked on water. Uh, but he calms their fears by saying, be of good cheer, uh, it is I, do not be afraid. Uh, and Jesus at that point will then come into the boat, calms the winds and the waves, the disciples fall at their, his feet, worshiping him, declaring him to be the very son of God. And immediately we read at that point the boat is on the other side of the sea to its destination. But in verses 28 to 31, Matthew records for us Peter's request to walk on water and Jesus' allowance of it and letting him do it. Mark and John who record, who record the uh, Jesus walking on water do not record this. Do not record uh, Peter walking on water. And it is chock full of truths and insights concerning faith and concerning doubting. And what I would like to do today is to look at this incident using four aspects, or if you will, four body parts, which will be our four points, uh, of Peter. And that is his mouth, his feet, his eyes, and then fourthly, Peter's hand. And so first, let's look at Peter's mouth. And if you're in Matthew 14, look at verses 28 in the beginning of verse 29. And there we read, And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And so he said, Come, come. 
right? Once the Lord says, it is I, the disciples, they know it's Jesus because they know his voice. And Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now the words, if it is you, could also be translated in the Greek, since it is you. And I think that's a much better fit for this context. So Peter knows it's Jesus uh, because, because and he knows it's him, he knows his voice. And because he knows it's him, he asks him if he can come to him. Now some commentators say, they, they say, you know what, Peter's request is kind of arrogant. And it's kind of showy. You know, Peter's being his bodacious self, and at times he is very bodacious. But I don't see that here now. I think Peter asks to come to Jesus because he loves Jesus, and he wants to be where Jesus is. Right? I think his heart is to be where his Lord is, and he voices his request because he wears his heart on his sleeve. It's kind of like in John 21, after Jesus resurrects, some of the disciples are out, are out in the sea and they're fishing. They're there all night. They catch nothing. Jesus comes by the shore in the morning and he says, have you caught anything? And they say, we haven't caught anything. And he says, we'll cast the net on the other side. And you know the story. They cast it on the other side and boom, they catch 153 fish. And then John says, it is the Lord. And what does Peter do when he hears it is the Lord? Immediately takes off his cloak or whatever he's wearing, jumps into the, uh, into the sea and goes to the, to the shore. Right away, Peter, before everybody else, wants to go see Jesus. And you know what? It was just two years before this that he was telling Jesus, depart from me, right, because I am a sinful man. And now he's saying, Lord, let me come to you. Let me come to you. I also think he's not showing off uh, because just moments before, he, like the other disciples, are racked with fear, thinking they have seen a ghost. And most importantly, the reason why I don't think he's showing off is because Jesus doesn't rebuke him for asking him to come. Right? Jesus doesn't say, why are you doing that? He just says, come. He approves it, come. So then Peter's motivated by love, but he's, he's, he's also moved by faith because he says, command me to come to you on the water. You see, he believes that Jesus has the power and the authority over everything, over everything. Just 12 hours before, he saw 20,000 people fed by Jesus with just five loaves and two fish. Uh, and he, he'll obviously collect the leftovers. And he remembers that they were in the same boat, or in a boat, on the same sea, maybe a year or so before, and it looked like they were going to perish, right? When the winds and the waves were kicking up, and a sleeping Jesus wakes up, rebukes the winds, rebukes the waves, and there was a calm. Add to that, he and the other disciples were given power by Jesus to do miracles as they went around Israel preaching the gospel. So Peter believes if Jesus gives him the command to walk on the water, that he can indeed walk on the water. And mind you, up to this point in history, no one but Jesus, and he is doing it right now, had ever walked on water. And Peter asks him if he can do it as well, and Jesus just says one word, come, come. He doesn't ask Peter why he wants to come. He doesn't tell Peter the dangers in coming. He just says come. And this, here's the truth for us. We can do anything that the Lord commands us to do. We can do anything the Lord commands us to do, right? If he asks us to add something to our lives or to take something out of our lives, even if it seems impossible to us and for us, we can indeed do it because he will enable us. He doesn't ask us to do something or command us to do something that he doesn't give us the grace to do. Peter asked for something extraordinary, and indeed it was extraordinary, right? And he believed that, that he would receive it, and he did. And if you or I ask anything in his will, no matter how extraordinary it would seem, he will, he will grant it to us, either as individuals and even as a church. 
So Peter's response was, was, was an act of faith. And we will see that he now exercises that faith more fully in the second point, and that is his feet. Now look at the second part of verse 29. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on water, on the water, to go to Jesus. Now you know, when you, when you read the Bible, we just sort of go over things, and sometimes we miss things that are absolutely mind-blowing. A lot of the Bible is mind-blowing, but we just sort of read something and go over it, and just, oh, okay, he walked on the water, he came down out of the boat. But as I was studying this, I was actually blown away by this verse. When he came down out of the boat, he walked on the water. Right? Let that sink in. He had come down out of the boat. This is where the rubber meets the road concerning Peter's faith and the genuineness of it. His, he actually came down out of the boat and put his foot, first foot on the water and then the second foot on the water. You realize how mind-blowing that is. Think for a second. Would you take a step on the water? No, you would drown and I would drown. Right? No one had ever done this before. Jesus says, come, and he just puts his, comes down and starts coming, right? It's one thing to ask to walk on the water, but really it's another to climb out of the boat and actually start putting your feet in the water. And, and he does. It's one thing to believe that an old rickety bridge between two mountains can hold somebody up, but it's really quite another to start walking across that old rickety bridge. Right? It's, it's one thing for a window washer to have faith that his security line can hold him while he's 40 stories up, you know, cleaning a window. But it's quite another thing for him to actually go up and clean a window 40 stories up with that security line on. Right? Uh, and so, so Peter proves his faith uh, uh, by actually going out. Now, he's a seasoned fisherman and most likely a pretty good swimmer, as we see from John 21. And he knows that nobody can even take one step on water without sinking. He knows that, right? And, and, and yet he steps out onto the water. Now, now, Peter doesn't stop as he's getting ready to go down out of the boat. He doesn't stop to, to ask Jesus, you know, are you sure it's okay if I can come? Are you sure it's okay? He doesn't, he doesn't say he'd wait a little bit for the wind and the waves to die down so it's a little more of a calm. He just obeys Jesus and his command and he comes. And obedience always goes hand in hand with faith. Obedience always goes hand in hand with faith. Or should we say that faith obeys Jesus? Faith obeys Jesus. And faith believes what he says, and faith does it. Right? Which is what James means when he says that, that, you know, that, it's, that not only to be a, a hearer of the word, but to be a doer of the word. Right? And then he says, I'll show you my faith by my works or by my obedience. So Peter obeys Jesus even though in and of himself he could not possibly walk on water. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for you and I. Now listen, he's not commanding us. He is not commanding us to walk on water, but he does command us to be holy. And he does command us to love our enemies. And he does command us to forgive those who have sinned against us. And he does command us to be salt and light in a world that is dark and wicked and does not want the salt and the light. Right? And, and he does command us to courageously proclaim the gospel to those around us. And he, he does command us to esteem others better than ourselves. And husbands, he commands us to unconditionally, sacrificially love our wives. And women who are wives today in this place, he commands you to respect and honor and to submit to the, the, to the husband that he's given you. He commands us these things. And all of these things are not possible for us to do in and of ourselves. None of them are. 
but all of them are very possible for us to do in Him because He's commanded us to do them. Now the problem with many professing believers today is we don't want to come out of the boat. We do not want to come out of the boat and the reason we don't want to come out of the boat is because we're afraid of the storm. Even though Jesus has commanded us to come out of the boat, so to speak, and He's promised to be there for them, still, don't want to put our foot in the water. We don't want to step out in faith. Why is that? Well, many reasons. Many reasons. Maybe, maybe, you're afraid of what people will think or say. Right? Maybe people don't want to speak up for Jesus, share their faith in Jesus, tell people the gospel about the things of God, uh, is because we don't want to be mocked. People to think ill of us. So we won't share with the kid at school. We won't talk to the person at work. It is a very odd thing if people, if you're around people for any length of time and they have no clue that you're a Christian, right? Is that not an odd thing? They should know something about you by the way you work, by the way you speak, by the things you do and don't do, by your demeanor, and certainly by hopefully at some point by you sharing the truth of, 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 of God in you, right? And so, but, but there are some who won't. Maybe some are afraid of what it might cost them, persecution, hardship, um, Division in the family, right? Listen, Jesus said, he said that the world will hate you because it's hated me, right? All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It is not only, Paul said in, in Philippians 1, it is not only been granted to you to believe, you see, so, so belief is a gift, but also, here's, part of, here's a second part of that gift, the other side of the coin, also to suffer for his sake, all right? So you want to live a gospel life, and be persecution and suffering, our suffering will be different than, let's say, if you lived in Syria or some, some Islamic country, but there's going to be suffering, right? So we don't want that, maybe. Or maybe we're afraid of what it's going to cost us financially. We don't want to part with what we have. Afraid we won't have enough for ourselves, so we don't cheerfully give back to the Lord, right? Maybe we don't want to be accountable to someone else. Many people will, will not join a church because we don't want to be accountable to a local body. The Christian life is a life of one another. There are 30-something one-anothers in the New Testament. You know what one-another means? It means community. It means we're involved in each other's lives. Some people, some Christians don't want to be involved because being involved means you need to be transparent. You need to share your, your heart. You need to, you know, encourage and be admonished and admonish and encourage others. And sometimes we don't want that. Right? So for some people, life is easier on the boat. It's easier to stay in the boat. But you need to know that Jesus stands ready to give us grace to enable us to come out of the boat to do His will, to walk in faith. But first, we've got to put our feet in the water and come to Jesus. That means we've got to leave the boat. And so I guess the question would be today is, you know, what has you or are you or what's keeping you in the boat? Is there something in life that's keeping you in the boat? that you, want, you do not want to come out of the boat and put your foot in the water? Is there something going on in your life that is keeping you from being obedient to the will of God in your life? I.e., what's keeping you in the boat? If nothing, amen, but if something, then you need to beg God to help you, right, to, 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 to take the first step and walk toward Him. What's keeping you in the boat? All right, well... You've got to put your foot in the water and come to Jesus. It's exactly what Peter does. He literally steps out in faith and begins to walk on the water towards Jesus. Listen, when a little father 
When little Emma, who's three years old, when Matthew says to Emma, Emma, I want you to cross the street. Come to me across the street. Emma, she just trusts in her father. She believes and trusts in her father. She doesn't stop and look both ways, right? She doesn't ask her dad, Dad, how's the traffic flow? What do you see? Is the red down there? Is there a stop sign? No. What does little Emma do? She just crosses the street and goes to her father, never even thinking about anything other than the fact that her father is standing there waiting for her. Why? Because her father said come, and she implicitly trusts in her father. No questions asked, no doubts. She just crosses the street. Well, that's what Peter does. That's what Peter does, and that's what you and I need to do. Peter puts his feet in the water, and he starts walking toward Jesus. And how far he walks, we don't know. But even if he took just one step on the water, but clearly it was more than that, that would be an amazing miracle, would it not? And that would be a genuine act of faith. And concerning genuine faith, one commentator said this. He said, God isn't asking us to do what we can. He's asking us to trust him to do through us what we can't. And so we see Peter's mouth and then his feet. Now we move over to his eyes in verse 30. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out saying, Lord, save me. Peter's doing what no other man other than Jesus has ever done. He is walking on water by, by the faith and power of Jesus Christ. And his eyes are fixed on Jesus. And his thoughts are fixed on Jesus. And he's getting closer and closer to Jesus. And let me say that when our eyes are fixed on Jesus, we can walk a walk that is worthy of the calling that we've been called to. We can walk a walk that is honoring to God. And we can have a walk that is a, a walk by faith. And we can walk even as our Lord walked in, in his earthly pilgrimage. And we can walk in the spirit. And we can walk in the newness of life. Right? And Peter is walking that way. Right? But, but then, then we read that he saw something. And that his eyes go off of Jesus and onto the winds and the waves. And when he considers these things, he becomes afraid. And his great faith, and it is a great faith at this point, is overcome by fear. You see, he begins to focus on something other than Jesus. And when he does, he becomes racked with fear for his life because he realizes, hey, I'm actually walking on water. And it is really windy out here. And the waves are pretty boisterous. And I'm feeling the spray of the waves all over me. Right? And by the way, there's nothing underneath me except for 200 feet of more water. I remember when I was about seven years old, I wanted to learn how to ride a bike. Nobody would teach me how to ride a bike. And so I decided I would teach myself. So what I did was I took out my older sister's bike, which I was not allowed to touch, of course, and I said I would teach myself. And it was too big for me, actually. I couldn't even, I could not sit on the seat and pedal at the same time. And it was a, a girl's bike. It wasn't like the crossbar this way. You just went like this, right? So I, would, I could stand up and pedal, and that's what I was doing. And I started to ride down the block, and I was going about 20 or 30 feet, and I was actually riding the bike. This was in Brooklyn. And I remember I was exhilarated. I was filled with joy. I couldn't believe how, how, how wonderful, and I was amazed that I could actually ride. But then I looked, and I saw trees coming on the sidewalk. Then I saw a garbage can, and I noticed some of the cement was lifted up because of the trees, and it made big bumps. And I got afraid, uh, and I became scared, and I panicked, and I ended up crashing into a chain-link fence, and I still have the four-inch scar on my thigh to this day. I panicked. Well, Peter is zeroed in on Jesus, and he is focused on Jesus. 
and he has his complete attention. But as soon as his focus goes on to other things and goes into another place, he begins to sink. And listen, Peter doesn't sink because he can't walk on water. The truth is, if he had kept his eyes fixed on Jesus, he could have walked across the Atlantic Ocean if he had kept his eyes fixed on Jesus. But he began to sink because he doubted that he could accomplish what Christ had commanded him to do. And he doubted because he was no longer looking unto Jesus, who was the author and finisher of his faith. You see, he shifted his focus. Just as I shifted my focus when I was riding that bike. And he lost his concentration. And he started to go down. And is not the same true for you and I today as well? Do we not do the same thing? When we begin to focus on our problems, when we begin to focus on our temptations or on the evil in the world around us, or we begin to focus on the corruption that's in our government or on ISIS and terrorism or on racial woes and injustices done to the weak and to the poor and to the lowly, or we begin to focus on our own financial problems or people that are against us, Right? And, and, and when we begin to focus on these things, what happens? We begin to lose heart. We begin to lose heart and our trust in Christ is weakened. Listen, when we focus on our circumstances and when we focus on our troubles, they appear to be overwhelming and they become insurmountable in our mind and in our eyes. And our trust in Christ, thrown out the door. When we dwell on our problems and when we dwell on our difficulties and our hardships, when we're not dwelling on Jesus, then we begin to sink. And the point here is that faith, faith focuses on Christ. And, and, and it's not that these other things aren't real. It's not that these problems and trials and circumstances, it's not that they're not real. Right? And it doesn't mean that we don't have to deal with them. We do have to deal with them. Right? But faith looks to Christ for hope and peace and direction and strength. It's like a, we have blinders on. Yes, it's going on. It's like a horse in a horse race. He has blinders on. He knows there are other horses running, but he's not paying attention to those horses. They're there. He knows they're there. Take the blinders off. He sees everything. And he's now focusing what's going on. And so we have blinders on, so to speak, and our focus is Christ. Yes, life is happening. Yes, there's troubles and there's trials and there's sufferings and there's hardships. Yes, 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 yes. But I'm looking that way. I got to deal with these things, but I'm looking that way. When Christ is not our focus, then peace and hope and direction and strength, those things diminish. And we end up beginning to sink. Martin Luther defined faith as this, nothing else but a sure and steadfast look at Jesus. Robert McShaney said this, he said, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. For every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. Well, Peter did well when he looked at Jesus, but when he looked away, he began to sink. How many of us have been just in that place where Peter was, figuratively speaking? We lose sight of Jesus because of things going on in our lives, and we're afraid or our desires, and we lose sight. You know, there was no mistake. There was no mistake in Peter leaving the boat. The mistake was he took his eyes off of Jesus. That's the mistake. No mistake going. The mistake was taking his eyes off of Jesus. One minute, Peter is a man of great faith. The next minute, he is crippled with fear. Right? And this... This is the experience of many Christians. Great faith crippled with fear. Right? We're at times, like I said, we're walking, and yes, there's troubles and trials, and yes, we're struggling, and yes, we can't pay a bill, and yes, you know, angst is going on at the job, and yes, I got a teacher at school who doesn't like me. Yes, yes, all those things are true. 
Yeah, but, but, but we have blinders on to the cares and troubles of this world because our eyes are fixed on Jesus and we're trusting in him. But it doesn't take much. It doesn't take much to cause us to shift our focus from Jesus onto those other things, whatever those other things are. And when we do, we begin to flounder. But thanks be to God, thanks be to God that he is patient and he is loving and he is merciful towards us and he is always there for us as we will soon see in Peter's case. While Peter begins to sink and he cries out to Jesus, he cries out, Lord, save me. And this in itself, in and of itself, is also an act of faith because he acknowledges that Jesus can save him. Right? Perhaps, perhaps Psalm 116 came to mind. The pains of death surrounded me and the pangs of Sheol laid hold of me. I found, tr I found trouble and sorrow. Then I called upon the name of the Lord. O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. Perhaps Psalm 69 came to mind. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no standing. I have come into deep waters where the floods overthrow me. So brothers and sisters, this is how we live the Christian life. We walk by faith. And when our faith fails, and when we begin to sink, right? And by the way, the Lord lets us sink, right? The Lord lets us sink. What do we do? We cry out. We cry out, Lord, save me. And he does. And when he does, guess what happens? Our faith is strengthened, and we grow in our faith because of his faithfulness. This is why James says, count it all joy. It's such a... It, it, it's so opposite of the world we live in. So contrary to how the world thinks. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Because they mature us and they grow us in our faith. Trials are good. They're good for the Christian. They grow us. They make us depend on them more. They deplete us of us. Because brothers and sisters, we have a lot of us in us and us is no good. And he's weeding us out of us and putting more of him in us. And trials do that in a big way. Trials do that in a big way. You see, Jesus is teaching us to believe in him more and more. Right? And that, 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 that he can accomplish things through us that we didn't even think possible. And if you've been saved for any length of time, you know this to be true. You know this to be true. Right? Therefore, when we're going down and when we're sinking, we need to cry out for him to save us. To cry out for him to save us. Not from, from, from hell, because if, if God has saved you, if you're born again, right? Yeah, there, is, there, is, there is no fear of hell, all right? There is no fear of hell. So we're not asking for that kind of salvation, but save us, Lord, from our fears. Save me from my self-reliance. Save me from my selfishness and greed and pride and, and, and my doubt. Save me, Lord. Save me because, because I'm, I'm apathetic. Save me because the world at times has a grip on me and I don't want to love the world because I know if I love the world then I really don't really love you. Right? So save me from my complaining spirit. Save me from my stubbornness, my, 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 my unwillingness to submit to you in all things. Because, because brothers and sisters, we, 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 when we're saved, we're saved. When, and when he's changed the heart, he's changed the heart. But, but so much of, of the old man has to be beaten out of us. And we cry, Lord, save me from those things. Change me from those things. John Brodus said this. He said, happy is the man whose conscious Helplessness leads him to cry out for divine help. Amen? And so we looked at Peter's mouth, Peter's feet, Peter's eyes, and now in verse 31, his hand. And immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, O oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? 
Peter's taking his eyes off of Jesus and he's sinking. And he cries out for Jesus to save him. And immediately Jesus stretches out his hand and catches him. All right? Now, he doesn't let him go down two or three times, teach him a lesson. Oh, you know? He doesn't do that. He saves him and catches him immediately. And although the text doesn't say that he grabbed Peter's hand, in all likelihood, that's exactly how he caught him. I mean, how else do you grab a sinking person since most of his body is already under the water? Right? And this shows us the amazing love of Jesus. He didn't have to reach out and grab Peter's hand. He could have just said a word and, and Peter would have been standing on the water with him. Or he just could have said a word and abracadabra, they'd both already be in the boat. Right? But he chooses to show Peter his love and care for him by grabbing his hand and saving him. The very hand that soon would be pierced for Peter's sins is a hand that he grabs him with. And Jesus often showed his love and compassion for people by touching them. Like, like when you read through the miracles, when you read through the miracles in the Gospels, notice how many times Jesus actually touches somebody before he heals them. And it's amazing when you think about it, right? In Matthew 8, there's a man that comes to Jesus. He, the Bible says he is full of leprosy. It's like stage 4 leprosy. This man is one big open sore and wound who's oozing. Right? He is, it, no Jew could come near him. And to touch him, they would be ceremonial unclean. But Jesus can touch him because Jesus is purely clean. Right? And before Jesus heals this man, he comes and he falls at his feet. Everybody scurries away. And, and he says to Jesus, he says, Lord, if you are willing, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And you know what the next thing we read in Matthew is? It says that Jesus touched him. And in the Greek, it means he put his hand on his shoulder. The guy's already down, bowing before him. And Jesus touches him. And I thought to myself, when was the last time anybody touched this guy? If he had a wife, she was long gone because he would have been unclean. This guy had no one ever put any kind of human touch on him. And you know what? We need that, don't we? We need a, a hug. That a boy. Go get him. Glad you're here. I'm with you. And Jesus touches him. It's a sign of love and compassion. It's, it's, it's who he is. He's a man. Yes, he's God, but he's a man. And then, of course, he heals him. The same thing when he healed Peter's mother-in-law. When she was sick in bed, the Bible tells us that he picked her up. He didn't have to do that. Right? In Luke 4, Luke 4, we read a multitude of sick people come to him. And then we read, and all of those who had any, any that was sick with various diseases that were brought to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Get the picture. It says many. It means a multitude of sick people with all kinds of diseases and illnesses. And they're bringing them to Jesus. It's at nighttime. And they're bringing it to him. And you know what? I'm thinking if I had a long day of ministry, you know what? I was thinking, you know what? I'm tired. I would just go out there, wave my arm over the crowd, and everybody would be here. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. It's, and the same thing is in Matthew also. But in Luke and in Matthew, what it says is he goes out and he touches every one of them. Every one of them. He touches them and heals every one of them because every one of them are important to him. Every one of them means something to him. He has great compassion on people. So Jesus incorporated the human touch with his divine healing. Well, Jesus reaches out and he grabs Peter. He grabs him. No, no hesitations here. No questions asked. Never mind that Peter just doubted him, right? He doesn't, say, he doesn't, he doesn't grab him and scold him while he's grabbing him. He's going to rebuke him in a minute, right? But he grabs him. He grabs him. And, and, and he, why? Because he dearly loves him, because he's one of his sheep. 
And he protects his sheep. And listen, he says in John 10 that his sheep are forever secure in his hand. That nobody can pry us out of his hand. And of course, he says, and we're in his hand, and he's in God's hand, and no one's going to take us out of the almighty hand of God. That's talking about eternal security. All right? And so he dearly loves them. And he, and he loves all of his sheep the same way. Well, after he saves Peter, he does gently rebuke him, and he says to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Now, notice. Notice that he, he did not say, Oh, you of no faith. He did not say, oh, you have no faith, but oh, you have little faith. And a little faith means that he has some faith. And, and, and even the person with the littlest amount of faith has faith in Jesus and is in Jesus. You see, the littlest amount of faith or the weakest amount of faith is enough faith to be a child of God because even that little faith is a gift from God. And Jesus never rejects somebody because their faith is weak or small. He never rejects someone because their faith is small. Not that we should be content with weak faith. Well, the pastor said I'm okay with weak faith. No, don't be content with that. We ought to grow in our faith. We ought to, we ought to want to be, 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 be giants in faith. Of course we do, right? We should desire that. And it's God's will that we grow in faith. But any faith in Christ is the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in that person's life. It's a gift. You can't even muster up a little faith. You know why you can't? Because the Bible says we're dead in trespasses and sins, and dead people can't do anything. We're spiritually dead, so we can't spiritually bring ourselves to life. That's a work of God. That's a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means to be born again. All right? And so God does that. And if God does that, even if it's weak and small at any point in time, it's still a work of God. And Jesus doesn't reject that. Well, Jesus is using Peter's weakness to grow his faith. And it will. And what Peter's walking on water and then sinking in the water is an illustration to all men. It's an illustration of faith, which is fixing your eyes on Jesus, which is why Jesus says to Peter, why did you doubt? In other words, Peter, why did you doubt that I could fulfill the command that I gave you to come? Why did you doubt that I, I, I could do that? Did you forget, Peter, that I have all power and authority over everything, over demons, over sickness, over nature, over everything? Right? Did you not, Peter, even see yourself walking on water for however many steps it was? Did you forget, Peter, just 12 hours before, the loaves and the fish and all that was left over? Listen, Peter doubted because he calculated the danger. He started to think about the wind whipping through his hair and the waves splashing on his face, and his focus came off of Jesus. Now, the word doubt and to doubt means to have a divided mind. It means to have a mind in two places, in two places. So Peter remembers the extraordinary miracles of Jesus, and yet he feels the wind, and he feels the waves, and he fears and he falls, right? He asked the Lord to command him to come because he believed he could indeed give him that command, and the Lord did. But on his way to the Lord, he doubted, and he began to sink. And it was doubt that caused the Israelites to wander in the wilderness for 38 additional years. You see, when they were, when they were just two years into the Exodus, Moses sent out 12 spies to go spy out the land of Canaan, which was promised to the people of Israel, which God was going to give them. And, and, and when they saw the people of that land, 10 of those spies came back and they gave a really bad report. Right? We read in Numbers 13, 28, Nevertheless, the people who dwell in that land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anarch there. And then they said this in verse 31, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. So basically, the people of Israel feared and doubted, and they say to Moses, We're not going. 
we're not going to go. Even though God has done countless miracles in our midst, even though we have seen the, 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 the Egyptian army destroyed in the Red Sea, we don't care. Even though God has promised us this land from all the way back to Abraham, we're not going, and we're not going because those people are large and those people are strong. And because they doubted who God is and the power of God and the promises of God and the protection of the living God, it cost Israel 38 more years wandering in the wilderness. Listen, doubt brings sorrow. Doubt brings anguish. Doubt brings weakness. It does those things to us. It keeps us from trusting and depending upon God. Therefore, therefore, we doubt that we can conquer a sin. I've been there. There's something in your life. You know it shouldn't be in your life. You know it, right? And you doubt that you can, you can beat it. We doubt we can beat it. We doubt the grace of God. We doubt that we can have victory over sin. I read an article the other day. 60% of, it, it, was a, it was a survey. 60% of confessing Christian men, 60% of men in the church said that they, they, they viewed pornography at least once a month. No one talks about it, of course. It's very shameful. But we doubt we can have victory over lust. We doubt we can have victory over pride. We doubt we can have victory over, over anger. Well, it's just the way I am, the way God made me. I'm always angry. No, anger is a sin, unless it's righteous anger, but I doubt many of us had that, right? But we, we, we doubt. Well, you know, God made women. I can't help but look at them. Well, but you can't help but lesson for them, right? We doubt we can have victory in those things. We doubt that we can forgive someone. I can never forgive that. I've heard Christians say, I can never forgive that guy. Well, the Bible says if you can't forgive, then you don't really know what it means to be forgiven. Right? We doubt. We doubt that we can make it through a struggle. And here's the problem. When we're doing this, we doubt that God's in control. We doubt that God is sovereign. Right? That's what we're doing. And what we're doing is, 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 is we're, we're demonstrating our lack of faith in the very God who saved us and the very gospel he saved us with. We're saying, I really don't believe those things. We're not saying it outwardly, but inwardly we're saying it. When we doubt. Now understand. Understand that having doubts does not prove or mean that a person has no faith as we are seeing with Peter. Obviously Peter's a man of faith, but also he's a man with doubt. But only in this case that one's faith is small and that their focus needs to go back on Christ. And when it goes back on Christ, we can say like the psalmist said in Psalm 94, if I say my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. Well, in closing, let me close by suggesting to you something that's not in the text, but I believe is implied by the text and in the text. And that is how Jesus and Peter get back to the boat. You see, once Jesus lifts Peter out of the water, I believe he holds, holds him near to himself, and they, they walk back together to the boat. You know, when someone falls down, when someone falls down and you help them up, you usually hold them until you get to where they're going, to the side of the street or whatever, right? And I believe that's what happened. I see here this beautiful picture of Jesus holding Peter, perhaps by the arm or perhaps around his waist, and leading him through the winds and through the waves and going back to the boat. So Jesus walks with him, and he walks with us as well. And he's got us by the arm, so to speak, as well. 
and he's leading us to rest and safety because he knows we are weak and he knows how easily we stumble and how glorious it must have been for Peter to be held up by Jesus in the storm. And I submit to you that figuratively speaking, we are being held up by Jesus as well and we are living the impossible life with him at our side. Therefore, we are conquering the storms of life because he is at our side. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you and I am with you always. And he is with us. He gave us his spirit to help us and empower us. All right? So brothers and sisters, the question is then, why do we doubt? If all these things are true, why do we doubt? Why do we fear? Why do we get anxious? Why do we question God? When he's right beside us. When he's promised to be with us and to keep us. You know, the remedy for doubt is to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. The remedy for doubt is to keep reading and praying and meditating and singing and speaking and crying out to Jesus, to saturate ourselves with Jesus, right? To, to take his word and as it were, you know, paste them on our eyelids and remember and meditate on the truths of God. He's, he's promised us great and glorious things, right? He doesn't save us and he's like, let us go loose and see what we do, right? No, he's with us every step of the way. You see, we're purchased possessions and he doesn't want to lose what he bought. And he didn't just save us to keep us out of hell, he saved us to glorify him. That's the end of all things, is to glorify God, right? And how does he glorify himself? By how we live. By growing in holiness. By becoming more like Jesus. That's his goal. You understand his goal is to grow us and to, to, to get glory from us by how we live, by how we think, by what motivates our hearts. Right? That's, that's what he's doing. And when he's ready, he'll take us home. Right? And we're growing. And we're growing the whole time. So what we need to do then is to identify what is the focus of our hearts. And, and if it's not Jesus, and at times it's not, we need to refocus our hearts, right? Don't we? We need to refocus. And if we begin to sink 100 times and we cry out to the Lord 100 times, he'll save us 100 times. He'll save us 100 times. Now, if you're not a born-again believer, if you've never truly repented of your sins and surrendered your life wholeheartedly to Jesus Christ, then you need to understand that your sin is sinking you. Your sin is sinking you. And if you die unsaved, you will incur the penalty of that sin, which is an eternal damnation. But you can and you must see your desperate situation. And, and, and you can and you must cry out to the Lord Jesus to save you. Not to save you from the hard things in your life. Not to save you because you've screwed this up or you screwed that up. Right? But to save you from your sin. Right? Because what your sin is, is absolute enmity against God. Right? And, and, it, and it causes you to be a, an enemy of a holy God. But if you truly cry out to Jesus to save you from your sin and the penalty of your sin... He will, in love and in compassion, stretch out his hand, as it were, and he'll pull you out of the waters of judgment, and he will bring you to himself, and I eat into the boat with him. And then all of your sin, not some of your sin, but all of your sin, all of your transgression, will be washed away from you, and they will, as it were, sink into the bottom of the sea, never to be brought up again. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the glorious gospel. Lord, thank you that you give sinners grace and we can find hope in Christ and in Christ alone. And Father, I pray for those who know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Lord, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus. Lord, help us to be conquerors, uh, Lord of sin. Lord, help us to be glory givers to you. 
And Lord, when we doubt, Lord, help us to identify what our fears or anxieties or struggles are and to refocus back on Christ. Lord, help us to be Lord, immersed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, for the soul of souls who maybe this day think they know you but don't know you in truth, Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would show them their dire need, their desperate situation. Lord, and draw them to the Savior. In his name, amen.